it's like you said at the beginning of, of one of the articles about you know we have these little secrets that we hide deep in our in our psyche and we even hide them from ourselves and man that's that hit me like a two by four between the eyes when I read that because I thought oh my god yeah you know, he's he's been he's been hanging out in my brain for sure so well, it's uh, yeah it's it, and everybody and, does it though don't 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 beat yourself up or exactly I mean, that's human nature that's exactly right that's why I don't beat myself up thinking oh my god yeah you know, I feel so bad and then I think well hell I'm just part of the human race. Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Hello everyone, thanks for joining us. This is Gary Crump, I'm the director of our medical certification group in the AOPA Pilot Information Center. I'm joined today for this PPS podcast by Dr. Ken Stahl. Ken is one of our contributing writers. He is a trauma surgeon and an active pilot down in South Florida. How's it going there today, Ken? Delightful. It's a little it's a little humid, but nice and warm, just like I like it. Winter in Florida. You can't beat it, that's for sure. For those of you who joined us in our last podcast, we talked about a series of articles that Ken has done for us over the last several months dealing with uh, the neuroscience of risk mitigation and preventing accidents, knowledge about how to fly safe. This is very much superficial, but it gets into really deep components of how our brains work. And Ken has been doing a great, great job of putting some really good science into some very down-to-earth discussions that are very, very understandable for us average pilots out there. So, in our last podcast, we actually finished up with a discussion about something that Ken calls error-producing conditions. And kind of where we want to go today for the next few minutes is the concept of actually being able to predict the future based on the knowledge that we have retained and, and obtained about how we do things, how we make decisions, why we sometimes don't make the correct decisions, and the consequences and being able to avoid those consequences. So uh, we're going to dwell on that for a little bit here. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Ken, and just kind of give us an overview of the uh, – actually, the article that we're talking about is called New Year's Predictions that uh, probably saw it in the January or February issue online. So, Ken, why don't you kind of give us an overview of what you're talking about in the New Year's Predictions because it's really, really good stuff. Go ahead. Well, thanks uh, thanks for that, and thanks for inviting me once again to talk about some safety issues that I, I really believe are important for anyone who does anything that, that carries some risk. Flying an airplane is is certainly not the least of it. So I was thinking about this topic when I was working on this over New Year's break, and, and I was thinking that one thing you do every New Year's Eve or maybe before and even a little after is take a look back at what you did and kind of come up with some predictions for for how things are going to go in the next year. And I remembered an old quote by by the old-time baseball players Yogi Berra and his and his pal Casey Stengel that was funny, but it was the question in my mind was was it really accurate? And they had this quip that you should never make predictions especially if they're about the future. And you know, it, it's got a nice ring to it, but really, is it that hard to predict the future? And I honestly think that 
especially when it comes to bad outcomes, errors, incidents, accidents, sometimes the predictions of the future are not that hard to make. And in the last podcast, we spent some time going over how hard the FAA will come down on any of us as pilots who have a DUI and driving a car while intoxicated. And I mean, how many times have you heard if you drive drunk, you're going to get in a wreck and hurting yourself is terrible. Hurting someone else in a wreck like that is even much more horrible. So, I mean, there are all kinds of simple predictions that we make about the future all the time. And I think they, they turn out to be pretty accurate. So, you know, again, I mean, in my never ending quest to apply some science to things that we know from a common sense knowledge point of view, but kind of digging deep into some, some things that some people have frankly devoted their whole lives to researching. And one is, is written by J.C. Williams, who was hired by the nuclear power industry to try and understand when bad things are more likely to occur than not. And he came up with this comprehensive model of evaluating the probability of human error and, you know, most of us here with a normal IQ would just say, you know, that's a prediction. And they applied a lot of science to a lot of bad outcomes and looking back at the circumstances that existed at the time of those outcomes, they came up with some, some statistically valid and mathematically uh, proven algorithms that they refer to, and uh, it's a catchy, another catchy phrase, I did not make this up though, that are called error-producing conditions or conveniently EPCs. And really what EPCs do for us is they provide a link from traditional systems approaches to bad outcomes and human, human error to really a more global situational prediction. And there's tables of these error-producing conditions that I, if you read the articles, the website will have embedded links to some of these. And it, it kind of plays back on the previous series, and we talked about this also in the previous podcast, on our own individual fingerprints of error. So we can make predictions of our own error, and I, I, I mentioned in the last podcast, in the last series of articles, to keep a diary of incidents, errors, hopefully not accidents, but things you've been involved with to identify your own patterns and fingerprints of error. And what J.C. Williams and his coworkers have done is taken this to a hugely more scientific basis. And the first error-producing condition, again, something that we all know from our own common sense experience, he, he quotes is, is fatigue. And mathematically, he shows that a crew that's operating under fatigue conditions is, is more than 50 times more likely to have an incident or accident than a well-rested crew. And this came up recently. Uh, the FAA had just recently released a circular on fatigue, and they quote the Continental flight that crashed in Buffalo uh, several winters ago, and it's the same reference I made. But just from a common sense point of view, uh, Gary, if you think about when anything famous and bad happened, whether it was the Titanic hitting an iceberg or the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown occurring or any number of bad things, they really tend to occur at night. 
and Williams points to why that is so likely with his with his studies. That's that's really amazing. And and from my my experience years ago of working in the operating room, you, you made a, a really interesting point in the uh, predictions article about the higher mortality that occurs in hospitals at night. And uh, I was a an OR tech for many years, and I can could relate to that. Not that I was contributing to the, the higher mortality rate, but I can remember the nights that I was on call, getting roused out of a deep sleep at you know two fifteen uh, to go to the operating room to help with a, a dissecting aortic aneurysm. And uh, of course, I was in my twenties then; I had no idea about uh, you know the differences, and I just assumed everybody's going to have the same outcome regardless of what time of day. But it's uh, it's enlightening and kind of uh, an eye opener to recognize that, you know, it would be really good if you can avoid a trip to the operating room as a patient during the nighttime hours when surgeons and uh, operating room crews are probably not at their best as far as performance and uh, and wakefulness. Absolutely, absolutely true. I, our brains are really hardwired to require sleep. And, you know, there's human variation, but certainly the human brain will not function with absolute total cognitive acuity with less than about six hours of sleep. And like I said, some folks require more or less, but certainly six to eight hours is required. And that goes along with the FAA mandates on time out of the cockpit between commercial flights. Those mandates just don't exist in healthcare. I mean, I can, I can not fly an airplane with a passenger in it, but I can go into the operating room and do some, some pretty complex surgery and not having slept for days. No one even asks. I, I think that, that the literature in healthcare supports William's contention. You can look at the mortality for outcomes from the same type of surgery, and it, it is clearly time-related. It is much riskier to the patient to have surgery in the middle of the night than the middle of the day. And even the, the pediatrics folks in the world of pediatric literature published a really interesting study where they correlated the risk of mortality in children who are admitted to the intensive care unit with the same diagnosis in the middle of the night versus the middle of the day. And all of those show that there is clearly a higher mortality for the patient, meaning that the people who are taking care of those patients are not as cognitively acute as they are in the middle of the day. And you know, in, in both the cockpit and in healthcare, and I can only hold my own behavior out as an example, but, you know, if I have to do something risky in the middle of the night, for one thing, I, I, I use Williams' error-producing conditions to understand that the middle of the night is just a time where humans are more likely to be mistake-prone than during the day. That's just one of Williams, as a matter of fact, the most risky time in Williams' error-producing conditions. And all pilots learn crew resource management. I've tried to bring that skill to the operating room. But when I walk into the operating room and wash my hands and step up to the table, I look at my assistant, the resident or whomever, the medical student, the scrub nurse, the OR techs, everybody is part of the crew. And I flat out say, look, you know, we're all tired. And I'm going to miss something and you're going to miss something. But if we talk about it, if we use good crew skills, communication skills, 
you're not going to miss the same thing I miss. I'm not going to miss the same thing you miss. So if it looks like I'm doing something wrong, don't hesitate to tell me, and I would do the same for you. And it's just a way of trying to mitigate behavior in the middle of the night to be a little safer. I'm laughing, Ken, because, again, it's hard to, to live in the back-in-those-days time frame, but that's the time frame I'm referencing right now because the surgeons that I worked with, I mean, they were incredible individuals, but I can't remember a single time where a surgeon looked at the rest of his operating room team and said, if you see me doing something wrong, let me know about it. <laughs> that just didn't happen back in the 70s and 80s when I was working in the operating room. So maybe it was just uh, you know, it's just uh, the luck of the draw for the the, doc, the surgeons that I was working with. But uh, it's kind of, a, kind of humorous in a kind of a weird sort of way that uh, – You've got uh, that kind of a, a mindset because of your, you know, because of your background and your experience and your, your uh, knowledge about the science that we're talking about. So it's an interesting correlation for sure. Sure, and and that behavior wasn't in the cockpit either. As a matter of fact, if you look back at the the whole genesis of crew resource management, it was because the guy in the left seat, you know, the captain could do no wrong. And nobody could tell him if they thought he something was going wrong. And it was it was just that attitude that was the genesis, the, the kernel that started the whole crew resource management. It it was a very famous accident that happened in, in American Airlines, I believe it was, maybe it was even prior to that, but a flight into Portland from Dallas where the first officer pulled the gear down and only got two out of three green lights. And the captain and the first officer were totally heads down looking at this panel to try and figure out why what they thought only two out of three landing gear were properly extended. And they told Portland that they were going to circle out in the, out in the periphery away from their traffic pattern until they figured it out. And if you listen to the, the cockpit voice recorder, there's this little mousy voice in the back of the tape saying, hey, you know, God, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. What he really was trying to tell them was they don't have enough gas for this. They don't have enough fuel. And it turns out that the least experienced, I mean, I'm not into the socially correct thing, but technically the lowest person on the totem pole had the most important information at that time which was that the plane was not carrying enough fuel to circle. And the plane ended up crashing within a few miles of the runway in Portland. And it turns out that the whole problem was actually twofold. One was about a 30 cent light bulb that was burned out, which is why they, they didn't have three green lights. And the second was their failure to listen to the one person who had the most important information in the flight deck, which was the old engineer position in a 727 that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. How true. How true. I want to get into a little bit here before we run out of time today. In your most recent, uh, I think it's probably one of your most recent articles, Ken, something that's, you know, those of us that are, I guess, baby boomers would remember more so than the millennials and Gen Zs and Gen Xs. Is the uh, the crash that killed Buddy Holly back in uh, in 1956? Why don't you run that scenario through for us? Because that was really an amazing. I hadn't thought about that accident in a long time, but the the anniversary of that accident was just like uh, what a couple of weeks ago in, in mid February, something like that. Why don't you run us through that scenario and uh, share some of your insights in that uh, 
referencing the article that you did on that crash. Oh, sure. And, and, and I hadn't thought about it for a long time either, but it, it was, it was February 3rd, 1959 that the accident occurred. And it, it just happened to be that I was working on this article, the kind of the wrap up to this piece on predictions of the future and error producing conditions. And I got a little bored with the writing and happened to be flipping through some mindless pages on the web. And there was a little thing that this is the anniversary of, of the accident that killed Buddy Holly. And then it got me thinking to one of my, my favorite songs. And as you saying, we're both dating ourselves with this, but Don McLean's American Pie, which was a song that, that he wrote based on that crash. And it kind of, commemorates not only the, the the tragic plane crash, but the lives and the music of Buddy Holly, uh, J.R. Richardson, who was known as the Big Bopper, and Richard Valenzuela, who went by the stage name Richie Valens. And they were, they were killed in a tragic accident that was really almost every one of J.C. Williams' air-producing conditions. It spells it right out there, which... I used to reinforce the point that the future is really not that hard to predict. And certainly knowing when bad things are more likely to happen than not can put you on a very vigilant thinking process that one, even going back to the previous podcast, that attitude we talked about in the models, that Cabo model of adult learning, which was knowledge and attitude, there's no doubt that they had the knowledge to know this was a potential problem, but they just didn't have the attitude to stop themselves from doing it. The, the, the incident really briefly, the pilot was a 21 year old named Roger Peterson. And he was not exactly a high time guy. He only had about 700 hours total. He wasn't instrument certified and he only had a few hours of instrument training uh, he had tried to get an instrument certification, but he failed the flight test. So he probably wasn't the best person to fly this band in the middle of the night, which is EPC number one fatigue. He was at the end of a 17-hour workday, which is already, and by today's regulations, would be would be forbidden. But he decided that, hey, whatever, I'll take one more flight. And it was to fly Buddy Holly's band to their next gig in the middle of the night and what turned out to be the middle of a snowstorm. And he, he basically violated every one of Williams' error-producing conditions. And the second article in the Predicting the Future spells those out in a little bit more detail. But to use Buddy Holly's accident just to remind us of those, not only was fatigue in place because of the long flight day, but he really didn't get a very good briefing of the weather conditions, which is lack of communication, uh, another one of, of the EPCs Williams talks about. It, it turns out that the flight briefers failed to mention one little piece of information was that right around the time, 1 o'clock in the morning, that he filed to leave, a blizzard was headed towards right into Mason City, Iowa, which is where he was taken off from. So at one in the morning, after having flown all those hours, he didn't know it, but he was only five minutes away from a weather front. 
which probably is why the whole flight only lasted five minutes. He took off in the dead of night and flew straight into a blizzard. So he was in pitch dark because there was vir virtually no moon and he was in the whiteout conditions of a blizzard and flew the plane down instead of up into the ground, killing everybody on the plane, hmm. which was how Don McLean starts his, his, his song American Pie off the day the music died. And that was the day the most popular band at the time, they all died. Absolutely. And I have to confess, I had listened to that song for decades before it finally became apparent that that's what that song was about. I thought it was just you know, Don McLean doing, you know, doing his weirdness. But it's amazing, you know, once pointed out, everything is obvious. And uh, it, was, it was great to finally put that together. And I thought, oh, why, how, how did I go for so long without realizing that? But I'm probably not the, <laughs> the first one or the last one to make that connection, too. So, but, yeah, what a, what a sad story. But, uh, you know, and, but back in 1959, you think about how much has changed as far as weather forecasting, weather reporting, the, the resources that we have available to us now, and yet these same type of accidents still happen. <laughs> so and the technology doesn't really doesn't really help us out in dealing with the EPCs like that. So it's, you know, we're, we're going to always be dealing with bad decisions. Clearly, and that's, that's, again, comes back to both your own individual tendencies to decisions and the attitude part of the of modern theories of adult learning. I can't believe that anyone didn't have the knowledge to know that this was a particularly risky situation. They just didn't have the attitude not to immerse themselves in this risk. I, I mean, there were a number of other of Williams' error-producing conditions that are, are part of the probable causes of the accident. In those days, it wasn't even the NTSB. It was called the C Civil Aeronautics Board. Right. They did the same deep dive into the conditions of the accident. And not only was there a lack of experience, as I, I stated that Roger Peterson was a low-time, non-instrument-rated pilot, but he was faced with the unfamiliarity of the instrument panel. He hadn't flown the plane that, that he crashed in, which was a, a fork-tailed bonanza. He hadn't flown it that much, and it turns out that the instruments on that airplane for what they were worth to a non-instrument rated pilot weren't even the ones he was used to. So lack of experience in unfamiliar circumstances is another one of Williams era producing conditions. And it was a fact back in, in those days that attitude indicators were one of two types. Either they were depicting a fixed airplane that rotated around a movable horizon bar or a fixed horizon bar with the airplane right. symbol that moved around it right. and he had, a, he had a sperry attitude indicator that he just hadn't much time with so he was not used to just the simple picture of his own attitude that the instrument was telling him it was opposite of what he was used to and that certainly could have contributed to as the nt i'm sorry as the cab the civil aeronautics board found when they examined the instruments is that his rate of climb indicator was pegged at minus 3,000 feet per minute, so it was a very steep descent. And certainly if his instruments, for what they were worth to him, again, as a non-instrument rated pilot, were showing him the opposite of what he thought, he certainly would have steered the airplane 
in the direction he was used to seeing the instrument depict, but unfortunately it was down instead of up. And that exactly describes how the Civil Aeronautics Board found the airplane like a day later buried in snow, and they finally found Buddy Holly and his band in the wreck. Wow. And, you know, taking it one step further, you got a, a, a young kid with low time and the chance to fly one of the most famous musicians of the time in his band. You know, that's, that has to have played into it somewhat, too, and, and maybe just kind of <laughs> kind of overwhelmed his thought processes of being able to make a name for himself and do something he could you know, share with his grandkids someday. Mm, very sad. I mean, that, that hubris part of the attitude yeah. that, you know, I can fly as tired as I am. I can fly in the worst weather. I, don't, I mean, I'm a great pilot. I'll get through it. Yeah, um, that true. lasted five, five minutes until everybody was dead. Mm, wow. Well, it's a great story, though. I mean, it's just, um, it, I don't know, it was just, it was really touching to, to read about that because I'd never even read the report about it before. So you shared in, in the article here uh, a lot of details about that flight and the, the scenario leading up to that. So it's a great learning experience for sure. For uh, those of you who have been with us for a while, Ken, as we said, has been writing for us for a couple of years. And so we, we're looking forward to a lot more of this kind of really great scientific but down-to-earth content that Ken is just so good at putting putting into words. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, what he's going to produce for us this year in 2020. But I want to thank you, Ken, for joining us today for this podcast and invite all of you to continue to support AOPA. We appreciate it greatly. If you're a PPS member, which you probably are because you're listening to this podcast, don't hesitate to give us a call. We are, um, as I've said for my many decades at AOPA, I am ambitiously lazy. We had much rather deal with the problem before the FAA gets involved with it rather than after the fact. So if you have any questions about anything dealing with your medical certificate, by all means, give us a call. This is what we do. We know how the system works. And with our knowledge about the operational aspects and the great content that we get from uh, Ken and all of our uh, of our contributing writers, you got a great package through our pilot protection services. So take advantage of it. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Enjoy the uh, rest of your day or night, wherever you may be. Fly often and fly safe. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.